All right. Can everybody hear me okay? All right. So let me ask you straight up. When was the last time you sinned? That's kind of a point blank question, but uh, uh, that's what it's meant to be. Uh, the world today seems to be hyper aware of sin, and it uses it as a tool to destroy people or promote a cause, whether it goes from corruption in government to scandals involving leaders in the Christian church or to daily abuses of power uh, or violence against each other. If you can stomach it, spend a few minutes reading traditional news or, as I call it, the cesspool of that is social media, uh, you will eventually be overwhelmed by humanity's capacity to find and expose each other's flaws. Do you find yourself becoming defensive or making excuses when someone calls out when your behavior isn't what Jesus or a good Christian would do? How do we respond as Christians when our sin is exposed? Ash read our text today, and it's Psalm 51. This psalm was written by King David as a lament and a plea for restoration after being confronted with his sin by the prophet Nathan. Sin, or thinking and acting in ways that don't conform to the character of God, is our way of life. As a fairly new married person, I struggle daily with decisions to selflessly sacrifice my time and energy to my wife and child, versus taking time for myself and chasing my own personal goals and desires. I think all of us have felt this struggle to one extent or another, following our own desires instead of focusing on the priorities and behaviors that God and Jesus exemplify in the Bible. The full story of David's fall is told in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. So we're going to go ahead and start there for full context and then jump into Psalm 51. We're going to recap 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and then uh, then we'll move over to Psalm 51. Uh, I want to show that David's sin is not only his sin, but it's our sin. And his response is the model for what our response should be when we find sin in our own lives. So, to recap, David and Bathsheba from 2 Samuel. David has stayed behind in Jerusalem during a time when kings are supposed to go to war. He walks on his roof in the evening, and he sees a woman, Bathsheba, bathing. His lust is kindled, and he sleeps with her, committing infidelity. When Bathsheba becomes pregnant, David then attempts to deceive Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, into thinking that Uriah is responsible for the child. When this fails, David sends a letter to his general, Joab, with orders to ensure that Uriah dies during the campaign. Now remember... David is described by God through the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 13, 13 as a man after his, God, own, his own heart. Fast forward to 2 Samuel 11, and let's look once more at David's actions. He passively or actively rebels against God's command to drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Numbers 33, 51-53. 2 Samuel 11 specifically notes in verse 1 that this happened during the time when kings go out to battle. This would be springtime when poor conditions of winter are eased and waging a military campaign becomes much more viable. So David, as a faithful king, obeying God's commands, would be joining his army in the field to fulfill God's command. He loses sight of what he was supposed to be doing, and he leaves himself open to further temptation. Next, 
David lusts after Bathsheba. He sees her bathing and sends messengers to compel her to visit him. 2 Samuel 11, 2-3. Next, David commits adultery when he sleeps with Bathsheba. Then David becomes a liar when he attempts to deceive Uriah into thinking Uriah is the cause of Bathsheba's pregnancy. Finally, David becomes a murderer when he commands Joab, his general, to arrange for Uriah's death at the hands of the Ammonites. So, to recap, in the course of a single chapter, the man after God's own heart shows that he is rebellious, lustful, unfaithful, lying, and a murderer. He runs the course of just about everything that we as regular folks would call sin. He demonstrates even those God loves or favors naturally behave in opposition to God's nature. In this way, David is a picture of me and he's a picture of you. We are fallen beings that act contrary to God. And thank God this is not where the story ends. In 2 Samuel 12, the prophet Nathan arrives to confront David with his sin. Nathan tells a parable of a rich man stealing a lamb from a poor man, and then David becomes angry, demanding justice for the theft. Nathan turns this around and accuses David of his sin. For six, the next six verses in 2 Samuel, Nathan exposes the sin and pronounces judgment on David and his family. How does David respond? In 2 Samuel, verse 13, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. No, I have sinned, quote unquote, is the exact same phrase that King Saul uses in response to his sin being exposed in 1 Samuel 15, verses 24 and 30. However, unlike King Saul, David continues and demonstrates what real repentance looks like. So that's David's picture of sin and the confrontation of his sin by a prophet of God. Now, David writes Psalm 51 in response. Beyond just saying in 2 Samuel, I have sinned, he then continues on and he writes a psalm of lament. This incorporates David's full response. Verses 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So how is David beginning with his response? He acknowledges God's authority and he appeals to God's mercy and love to forgive his sins. When we're wrestling with sin, how do we approach God? Are we defensive and bitter? Should we instead let go of any ego and lies we tell ourselves, approaching God humbly in full recognition of his authority over us? Continuing from verse 3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Building upon his recognition of God's authority, David honestly confesses that he is fully aware of his own sin and that God is both right and has a righteous duty to judge him for it. Contrast this with Adam and Eve's individual responses to their sin in Genesis 3.12. 
and 13. Adam says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Eve's response, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Why do we think that we can hide or blame someone else or even God himself for our own sin? David understands this. He understands that sin is an intrinsic and inescapable part of being human. And also that God wants us to be honest when recognizing this. Verse 6 again. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret part. Church, we have to be honest with ourselves and with our God when we're confronted with sin. We might fool each other sometimes or pretend that we're perfect. I know I do. But God, the creator of this universe and the eternal authority overall, he's seen our full depravity of humanity on display since Adam and Eve in the garden. Nothing we've done can surprise God, and any self-justifications we dare bring before him are generally meaningless. He knows the truth. True repentance requires honesty. Verses 7 through 12. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now let's look at the imagery here for a moment. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Hyssop is a plant that in the Levitical priesthood, um, the priests would dip this plant in the ashes left over from sacrifice, and then wipe off the temple implements with it. We've since found that these ashes would contain rudimentary lye, and thus the ashes actually uh, function as a simplified soap. The priests were quite literally washing the temple implements um, in soap. What a powerful image. This is, this is the imagery that David is evoking. For a sacrifice to then become ash, then take on the characteristics of soap, and then be used to cleanse. Is David literally doing this? No, no, no. He's using this as a metaphor for what God is doing to us when we repent. So what does forgiveness mean? For God to put away our sin from himself and restore his relationship with us as if we hadn't sinned in the first place. I lose sight of this reality all the time. Uh, in my daily practice of sin or daily processes of sin, repentance, and uh, restoration and discipleship, think about it for a moment. To be forgiven means for God to see us as blameless before him, as if we had never sinned. That is an awesome state of affairs for God to completely absolve us or, or uh, otherwise Forget about our sin. There is no grudges. There are no history. Restoration also brings joy from verse 12. The joy of being in the presence of God and with the Holy Spirit. Sin is not allowed in God's presence. Therefore, when our sin is forgiven, we are allowed to enter fully again into God's presence. 
Now, does this joy and restoration mean that we are free from the consequences of sin? No. God still responds in justice to our depravity, and our actions always have consequences. Now, does that mean that God could be merciful when responding to our sin? Of course. God loves to be merciful. He demonstrates this every day. Is God also equally right to punish us for rebelling against his authority? In truth, he should do nothing else. Please hear me when I say Psalm 51 is not a magic formula or some kind of incantation that we can invoke to avoid God's judgment for sin. To have that attitude and mindset is to ignore the core feelings of remorse, brokenness, and humbleness that is central to the process of repentance. Look back at David's situation in 2 Samuel. What were the consequences for him in his repentance? The consequences for David were that his son died and his family was cursed with infighting, incest, and murder. 2 Samuel 12.10 and 12.14. Through this, what was David's response? Verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Remember, our time on earth here is temporary. David is pointing out, more than anything else, the one primary priority that he, and by extension we, should focus on is restoring our right relationship with God. We live in a fallen world and richly deserve any punishments God sees fit to give us. But what an awesome God that through that, we can still be restored and have joy in knowing that someday things will be different. In David's story, God is merciful and doesn't kill David for his sins, which is the correct punishment according to the Levitical law. However, David lives with the remaining consequences by watching his son with Bathsheba die and the rest of his family tear itself apart. In the uh, recount in 2 Samuel, David lies prostrate on the temple floor for seven days while his child is dying, refusing to eat. I want to focus for just a second more on the consequences to David as I find some additional parallels and imagery that should be examined. Now, the death of the child is very clearly a consequence of David's sin. It's not, I'm not trying to say or argue that it's some sort of atonement, uh, sacrifice of atonement or anything like that. It is the consequence of his sin. However, you can see in this scene, there is a typology. There are, there are foreshadowings of bigger things. Um, you can see the scene in the scene echoes of the bigger picture for Israel and Christ's sacrifice too. Just like David's family, the political entity of Israel has existed in a constant state of warfare from his day. Even to this day, while uh, the, the nation state of Israel is in a technical form of peace, it still is in an active state of war with most of its surrounding countries uh, like Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Iran, and Syria. There may be periods of quiet. Israel has never truly known peace on this earth. Additionally, there was another son of David that also died for sin. In this endless cycle of sin, repentance, and restoration, God sent his son to pay the ultimate price demanded by justice for all of our sin. While David didn't get to see this final sacrifice, 
we now can look and see how perfectly his response to sin fits with the salvific and continual discipleship work of Christ with his church. David's final response to his sin comes in verses 13 through 19. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and the whole burnt offerings. The bulls will be offered on your altar. This is something that struck me when I, when I read this. The right response to sin has an outward component. I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. We need to declare aloud what God can do and how he shows us forgiveness. Think of it. We can worship God and rejoice in his forgiveness by teaching the cycle of restoration to others. When the world sees us fail in our Christian duty, and they will, what is the accusation? You're all a bunch of hypocrites. You say you're perfect like Christ's. You're really no different from me. What a powerful response we could have by saying, yes, I do fail at being a Christian. Here's how Jesus restores me, and I continue trying to become more like him. How uplifting would it be in the church if we took every opportunity to encourage each other by reminding and being reminded of what God forgives? Parents, Take every opportunity to not only teach, show your children what the cycle of sin, repentance, and restoration looks like. How much better equipped would your children be for a relationship with God if we can both outwardly exemplify and teach what a proper response to sin looks like? In summary, we're all sinners. Jesus paid the total price for our sin through his sacrifice. We are called to accept the sacrifice and turn away from our sin. When we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, his sacrifice is imparted to us and is a worthy substitute for our sin. But the story doesn't end there. Jesus calls us to emulate him and demonstrate God's truth and character to the rest of the world. Also, while we can regeneratively accept Jesus and his sacrifice, we will continually struggle with our inherent sin nature until such times we are transformed by God into perfect beings and become incapable of sin. This means we will continue to go through a cycle of sin, repentance, and restoration. Psalm 51 provides a beautiful guide for the emotionality and action that we should be taking during this process. In summary, Psalm 51 gives us a picture of right response to God and confession to sin. How do we do this? Acknowledge God's authority in your life and recognize his justification to pass judgment in your life. Next, honestly confess your sin to him, not with excuses, but in humbleness and brokenness. 
joyfully accept whatever the consequences of your sin might be. Finally, declare aloud and teach the rest of the world about what God can do and has done in your life. Sounds easy, right? I know my default reaction is always defensiveness or excuses when my sin is exposed, whether someone does it publicly or I'm confronted with it in my own self-examination. We will spend the rest of our lives on this incredible journey of growth. Don't forget to help each other on the way. Are you confessing your sin to God? Do you feel broken or contrite when you sin? Are you telling others about what a merciful God we have that can restore us after we sin? Let's take a few moments now, and we're going to bow our heads and go to the Lord. Ask him to help us in our response to sin, to create a spirit of brokenness and humbleness when dealing with our sin, and to restore our joy and salvation and renew a right, right relationship with him. Let's bow our heads. <laughs> Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you as a church of people that are broken, are sinners, that need you today, tomorrow, and every day. Create in us the right spirit, Lord, so that we can respond appropriately to our sin, that we can humbly seek you, beg for your forgiveness, experience the joy of being in full and right relationship with you, Lord. And give us the courage to go out amongst the world and tell others of what you have done for us. Give us a spirit of discipleship, of training, so that we, we may train each other um, in the right processes of repentance. Help us seek a lost world and teach them about your authority and your mercy, Lord. Give us a spirit to do this every day to build up good habits, and to help each other on this road. We love you. We praise you. And it's your holy and very precious name we pray. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song. The grace is Jesus, my redeemer. There is no more heaven else to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom. My steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this hour, 
Good job. Uh, clear gospel message. 
um, about uh, the truth of, of who we are and who God is and how he has made a way for us to be reconciled to himself um, through Jesus Christ as we repent, as we believe, um, and he welcomes in us, us into that relationship. And then and then he does it over and over again, right? Um, not that we are resaved, but that we, we recognize our sin and the continuing work that God is doing in our lives. And, and we repent again and he restores us and we mess up and we repent again and he restores us. That's a beautiful message. Um, thank you. Um, next week, you just get to hear me. Um, and so, uh, maybe less exciting. Um, but, um, we'll continue on in our series in, in the Psalms. Um, I'll, I'll be preaching next week. Um, Kyle will be preaching for us in two weeks. Um, yeah, we don't have any drums to do. Yeah, that's, uh, um, and then we'll probably, uh, then by, about the end of the month, we'll start in our series of Philippians, but, um, good to see you. Um, hope you had a great week. Hope the, the holiday week, um, was good to you. Um, hope you got to blow some stuff up and eat some hot dogs. Um, so, um, and thank God for the freedoms that we have. So, uh, here's benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week. Thank mm-hmm. you.